0: From the Center of Theological Inquiry in Princeton, New Jersey, this is the Fresh Thinking Podcast. I'm Josh Malden, and I'm glad you're here. Ladies and gentlemen, a very warm good afternoon, and welcome to the Center of, the, of Theological Inquiry. My name is Will Storer, and as the director of the center, it's my great honor to welcome our distinguished guests this afternoon, and speakers, and also uh, dear personal friends. I can start, though, with a world exclusive. Uh, in this room, uh, at the end of June, we're holding a book festival uh, with Morvan, our neighbours. It's not yet been publicly announced. We're bringing four British authors over, but we're calling it the Salon on Stockton Street. And what I said when I invited our distinguished speaker this afternoon is... We don't do uh, lecture theaters, we do salons at Princeton uh, at the Center of Theological Inquiry. And so it's very wonderful for us to welcome you all this afternoon for this salon, where we're going to have the great privilege and pleasure of listening to a remarkable diplomat and scholar and Renaissance man who brings his deep commitment to peace and reconciliation in the world to his work as a distinguished uh, Irish diplomat. Philip McDonough, had the good sense to be educated by the Jesuits in Copenhagen and in Dublin, and then was a student at Balliol College, Oxford, where he was elected president of the Union and obtained a first-class honours degree in classics. As an Irish diplomat, he has served his country around the world, including serving as ambassador to India, to the Holy See, to Finland, to Russia, and currently to the Organization for Security and cooperation in Europe. Philip is also a published poet and has four collections of poetry published and has published in scholarly journals uh, in various quarters. We're delighted that Philip is joined by his wife, Dr. Anna Grenfell, who is here with him on his short visit to the United States for this lecture and later to a lecture in New York City. Philip and Anna have two daughters, and um, they are a cosmopolitan, well-traveled family. And we're delighted that they're with us here this afternoon. We're also delighted to welcome uh, Professor Melissa Lane, who is the 1943 class professor of politics at Princeton University. And as I will say later, among her public, uh, published works is a book on uh, the eco-republic, on ecology and Plato, And may I say, she arrived here by bicycle this afternoon, (laughs) and so she practices what she preaches. This is a very special occasion in the life of the Center. It is our second annual lecture on global concerns. Last year, my distinguished senior colleague, Dr. Robin Lovin, launched this new series, an annual lecture on global concerns. Robin reflected on the state of public and moral discourse in American politics, Uh, And we were delighted then that the UN Special Representative on Religion and Global Affairs, Sean Casey, from the State Department, was respondent. The spirit of this occasion is to open up a conversation with you in our salon. And to do that this afternoon, we're delighted that Melissa will respond formally uh, to Philip's lecture. Philip, as we heard, is a classicist who is deeply concerned for peacemaking in the world. As a diplomat, Uh, and in his own personal values and commitments. And so he's chosen for us this afternoon a wonderful topic, a common peace, an ancient Greek conception of world order. Will you please welcome His Excellency Ambassador Philip McDonough?
1: I'm most grateful to Professor Will Starrer, uh, my good friend, and to the Center for this invitation to address you. My theme is the ancient conception of koine irene, a general or common peace. I speak, of course, in a personal capacity as someone with a lifelong interest in the classics. In ancient Greece and Rome... Peace is a theological and anthropological question as well as a practical challenge. At the beginning of the ancient tradition in Hesiod and Pindar, peace, (irene) is personified as the daughter of Zeus and Themis, of a providential god and the human search for order. One thousand years later, as the Western classical tradition is reshaped, in the light of Christian belief, St. Augustine argues that there is no man who does not wish for peace. Even when men wish a present state of peace to be disturbed, he continues, they do so not because they hate peace, but because they desire the present peace to be exchanged for one that suits their wishes. On the 22nd of January, 1917, an American thinker who also derived his politics from first principles, declared the following in the Senate of the United States. There must be not a balance of power, but a community of power, not organized rivalries, but an organized common peace. President Wilson gave capital letters to common peace his speech mentions elements typical of certain ancient conceptions of common peace, the autonomy of peoples, freedom of the seas, an end to entangling alliances, and an awareness of shared benefit. Like the Greeks and the Romans, Wilson saw the organization of peace as a political project going beyond the establishment of procedures for arbitration. Wilson had taught ancient history at Bryn Mawr, And I would like to think that in using the term common peace, he was placing himself imaginatively in the ancient world, in particular in the world of Thucydides and the Greek city states. In addressing this subject of Koine Irene, I indirectly take a position in relation to the study of ancient history. Some historians of the ancient world rightly help to liberate us from a Eurocentric worldview by paying more attention to Persia or through comparative studies. Henry Kissinger's tremendous book on world order has much to say about Chinese and Islamic traditions. Nevertheless, the insights we need in the 21st century can still be sought through what the French call ressourcement, the reappropriation of the Greco-Roman tradition. In broadening the study of ancient history to create a global perspective, let us also continue working in the corner of the vineyard that we know and love best, the Athens of Pericles, in which humanity saw clearly for the first time that freedom and security go together. The past is unpredictable, states an Indian writer. The questions we bring to any serious dialogue with the past will always depend on today's concerns. It is a special privilege that Professor Melissa Lane has agreed to respond to my talk. Her groundbreaking work is a model of how to relate Greek and Roman political ideas to contemporary political debates. In tackling the subject of a common peace, I'm fortunate that my good friend and old tutor, Oswin Murray, has drawn my attention to lectures delivered by Arnaldo Momigliano in Cambridge in 1940. Momigliano was then a Jewish refugee from fascism. His concern, a deep personal concern, was to explore the relationship between order and freedom in the ancient world. The Greeks cherished freedom, the Romans established order. Stoic Jewish and Christian philosophers believed in the moral freedom of the just man and his friends. This afternoon, I derive from Momiliano a fundamental insight. The understanding of peace in the ancient world falls, like Caesar's goal, into three parts, in which the key figures are Augustus, Pericles, and St. Augustine. I will look first at the high point of what I call the authoritarian vision of peace in the Pax Augusta, that seductive picture of nature and the world at peace that we find in the Ara Pacis in Rome, on the coins of Augustus, and of course in Virgil and Horace. I will then argue that in the Golden Age of Athens there was a different search for peace arising out of the Greek League against Persia. For the sake of simplicity, I will call this the democratic vision of Koine irene. Wonders are many and none more wonderful than man, proclaims the chorus in the central ode of the Antigone, a hymn to human potential that ends with an affirmation of the part played by state and interstate law. When we respect the laws of the earth and the sanctity of oaths, the polis is exalted. Finally, I will turn to the New Testament and the fathers of the Church. St. Augustine borrows the concept of dual citizenship from the Stoics, who held that we are citizens of our own polis and also citizens of the cosmos, the world order. Koine Irene, a common peace, is embodied in the first instance, by a community within the community made up of those who love wisdom. The existence of this community is a criterion or an agent of gradual social change. In all three phases, Roman, Greek, and Christian, the underlying goal is to move away from relationships determined by power to relationships marked by goodwill and consent. At the conclusion of my talk, I will try to draw some lessons for today. I will now turn to the Pax Romana. And I know I'm taking things chronologically in the wrong sequence. I'm doing the Pax Romana and then Athens and then St. Augustine. Polybius takes as the starting point of his history the year 387 BC because of three seminal events. Rome survives an invasion by the Gauls, the Greeks in Sicily push back the Carthaginians, and the Greeks of the mainland and the eastern Aegean conclude the so-called King's Peace. It is the King's Peace that interests us here. As far as we know, the King's Peace, or Peace of and talkidas is the first instance in which the term koine irene, or common peace, is used in a formal way to describe a Greek multilateral treaty. Several other treaties and treaty proposals of the 4th century were described as providing for koine irene, which became a technical term for a peace applicable to all Greek states equally, and allowing them to remain autonomous. But for Polybius, what made the Common Peace of 387 an historical turning point is that it included a third element, the presence of a guarantor. In the King's Peace, the power of the Persian king underwrites the leading position of Sparta among the Greek city states and assures the autonomy, stability, and prosperity of the individual polis. The pattern represented by the king's peace was to play a major role in the history of Europe. In the League of Corinth, established in 338, Philip of Macedon took the place of the king of Persia as guarantor of cities' rights, with the new element that an aggressive war against Persia was the premise of the league, and Philip was explicitly named as hegemon or leader. Give us peace, O much-beloved, because you are the Lord. The Athenians addressed this prayer to Demetrius Polyarchites, who proclaimed a new common peace in 302 BC, a peace conferred by the beneficence of the conqueror. Beginning with the peace between Rome and Macedon in 205 BC, Koine Irene starts to become an important factor in Roman thinking. In the 2nd century BC, Scipio Aemilianus and other Roman statesmen were led by Greek philosophers to make a distinction between mere organized force and the res publica as a means of promoting a rule-bound society aiming at a common benefit. Roman dominion could be understood as a providential path towards the unity of peoples under shared political institutions. The value system of the principate is a sophisticated version of koine irene as proclaimed by monarchs like Demetrius Polyarchetes. Roman religion and traditional morality, imagined in a new way, are juxtaposed with Greek and Eastern conceptions of the divinely sanctioned ruler and even with messianic prophecy, such as we find in the fourth eclogue. Octavian, the ruthless operator of the Second Triumvirate, emerges in the early 20s BC as Augustus and introduces the constitutional settlement that was termed the Res Publica Restituta. Augustus, the one who is to be revered, is a carefully chosen title, avoiding the risky resonance of Imperator or Rex or Caesar the res publica restituta suggests not the actual restoration of the Roman Republic, but something more like the reconfiguration of a state of laws drawing on traditional institutions and values. Writing in the late 50s BC, during the rivalry between Pompey and Caesar, Cicero imagines a political leader, the rector rei publicae, operating outside the structures of the Constitution and guiding the fundamental choices of the state through influence. Augustus, in the Res Publica Restituta, has something in common with Cicero's rector. The new Roman narrative, the organization of opinion, as Ronald Syme puts it, was focused on the word peace. The Pacis in Rome, created between 13 and 9 BC, attributes ultimate or cosmic significance to the political success of Augustus. According to some reconstructions, an Egyptian obelisk laid a finger of shadow on the Pacis to mark the date of Augustus's birthday. On the altar itself, the goddess Peace is portrayed as Mother Earth. The occasion of the Senate's commission of the Arapaches was the safe return of the princeps from military campaigns in Hispania and Gaul. In his Res Gestae, Augustus speaks of Parta Victoriis Pax, peace born of victories. Augustus needed to have military imperium and to retain personal command of the legions stationed in Hispania, Gallia, Egypt, and some other provinces. At the same time, he wanted it to be understood that his imperium was oriented towards the goal of peace. The elites of the great cities would be spared any immediacy of armed conflict. In the iconography of the Pacis, the goddess of Rome, weapons by her side, and the female figure of the goddess Peace are separated. In the Carmen Saeculare, Horace presents a deliberately vague picture of Augustus as a conqueror whose work is done, generous to the fallen, feared by the Parthians, receiving embassies from the Indians and the Scythians. A procession including Augustus Agrippa and members of the Roman Nomenclatura is pictured on the Pacis on its way to a sacrifice, In a mural in Florence by Benozzo Gozzoli, the Medici and their supporters accompany the Magi in a winding procession to the crib. In both cases, political newcomers, their enemies would say usurpers, are presented as the servants and guarantors of the shared religious values of society. While the foundation of peace is the person of the ruler and Augustus wants to be recognised as a saviour, the iconography of the Arapaches allows us to think of him also as a man of piety, the servant of the republic, primus inter pares. The Arapaches declares the non-revolutionary intent of the principate. With peace comes the productivity of Mother Earth. In his Carmen Saculare Horace had put it like this. Beautiful in crops and cattle, may Mother Earth deck Ceres with a crown of corn, and may Jove's wholesome rains and breezes give increase to the harvest. Peace, a new era, virtuous rulers, the respect of distant peoples, family, fertility, the divine status of the world revealed at last by and in Caesar Augustus. In the midst of all this good news, we learn subliminally that the privileges of the ruling classes are safe. Vilaeus Paterculus writes as follows about the achievement of Augustus. Validity was restored to the laws, authority to the courts, and dignity to the Senate. The power of magistrates was reduced to its former limits. Agriculture returned to the fields, respect to religion, to mankind, freedom from anxiety, and to each citizen his property rights were now assured. I am taken with the following sentence from an American writer on diplomacy. Just as the reserves of a bank do not nearly equal its financial commitments, so the force available to the greatest empires has never been nearly equal to their imperial commitments. Under the principate, imperium, power based on the ability to compel is augmented by auctoritas, a power of initiative that has a moral basis and is more or less freely accepted. The understanding of the common peace that began in the 4th century BC in Greece and culminated in the settlement of Augustus involved a sustained effort to economize on the use of force by securing as much consent as possible in key constituencies. I come back to Polybius. Writing in the second half of the second century BC, he wanted to persuade a Greek audience that the Roman Empire was something very like the end of history. 200 years later, within an even larger empire, Flavius Josephus presented a similar case to a Jewish audience. Polybius walked with Scipio among the ruins of Carthage. Josephus as advisor on Jewish affairs to Vespasian and Titus, was eyewitness to the mass crucifixion of Jews during the siege of Jerusalem. The co-option by Rome of men like these made possible the expansiveness of Virgil in Book 6 of the Aeneid. This is the man, this is he, who you know was long promised to you, Caesar Augustus, the son of God and the bringer of the Golden Age. Now I'm going back in time to Athenian democracy. I turn now to what I termed a moment ago the democratic vision of a common peace, which is more a question of managing the medium term than of creating a permanent system. Thucydides' narrative of the origins of the Peloponnesian War is a story of polarization. The bilateral treaty of 446 the 30 years' peace, is not sufficiently detailed to provide a roadmap in a changing political environment. However, Thucydides does not accept the inevitability of war or endorse the authoritarian assumptions behind the 4th century king's peace. He describes what today we would call regime decay at the level both of individual city-states and of the Greek world as a whole. The Athenians, or some Athenians, may have come to believe that the pursuit of self-interest and the domination of the weak by the strong represent a necessary law of nature. But Thucydides complicates such an analysis by showing us that the destruction of Milos and similar actions bring no lasting benefit to the perpetrators. This tragic dimension to Thucydides' history deserves close attention. War is the bebaias didaskalas, the savage teacher. Conflict runs its course like a disease. Political actors lose their inhibitions. Justice, restraint, and good faith are less and less operative. This picture of disinhibition and regime decay applies both to the inner life of the city-states and to interstate relations. It is pertinent to ask, therefore, if there was an alternative. Was there any prospect of a common peace among the Greek states of the Aegean? After the city comes the world which the philosophers reckon as the third level of human society. This observation by St. Augustine engages indirectly with Aristotle's thought. In Aristotle, our lack of self-sufficiency leads to social organization at three levels, household, village, and polis. In the picture painted by St. Augustine, the three relevant levels are the household, domus, polis, kivitas, or urbs, and global society, the orbis terrae. My question about peaceful alternatives to the Peloponnesian War is really the question whether there is any trace in 5th century Athens of the subsequent idea that social organization is possible at a level higher than that of the polis. Did the Athenians perceive an analogy between the transformation of social relations at Athens and a possible transformation of social relations among the states of the Aegean? Did they imagine that Athens' arche, in the Greek world, her power of leadership or decision, deserved a wide measure of acceptance? I believe that the answer to these questions is yes, if by Athenians we mean their leading thinkers. In Thucydides, the classic statement about peace as a shared public good in interstate relations is the account of a conference at Gala in Sicily in 424 BC, at which the city-states of the island rule out resolving their differences by war. The advocate of this rounded vision of peace, Hermocrates of Syracuse, does not use the precise term common peace, koine irene, but an adverb from the key adjective koinos occurs twice in his major speech. Pericles had argued in the funeral oration that private interests and the common interest are correlative. Hermocrates transposes this idea to interstate relations. To protect the private interests of each state, it is necessary to secure the common interest of Sicily as a whole. We know from Thucydides that of an altar to Apollo outside the city of Naxos at which representatives of the Sicilian states made sacrifices as they departed on regular sacred missions to the shrine of Apollo at Delphi. Delphi was the center of an amphictyony, a political arrangement designed to prevent or limit war among a defined group of states. This model of political unification must have seemed relevant to the Greek colonies in Sicily. One piece of circumstantial evidence is worth mentioning. The Congress at Gela in 424 was the concluding and presumably culminating event in the first general history of Sicily, that of Antiochus. I believe that the main themes of President Woodrow Wilson's alternative to Realpolitik, a universal political project, variable geometry at the level of institutions, gradualism, a commitment to prosperity and progress, the leadership of a great democracy, all these can be discerned in the political conversation at Athens in the age of Thucydides. Not only that, but there is evidence of a multilateral initiative by Pericles to bring about a general peace on these lines. Thucydides' approaches the Panhellenic question from a developmental perspective. From the beginning, the question facing the scattered and divided Greek communities was whether interaction by sea could be rendered predictable and safe. The first common enterprises in Greek history leading to an accumulation of resources involved sea power. A second feature of what I've called the political conversation is the success and sophistication of the Greek League against Persia. This League was open to all the Greek states and considered itself the legitimate voice of all Hellas. In the Congress of the League, each state had one vote, a model of decision-making that confirmed the freedom of the individual states. The Greek League was intended to coexist with other alliances and other arrangements, notably Sparta's network of bilateral treaties. The democratic functioning of the League Congress was counterbalanced by the pragmatic decision to give the military command both by land and sea to Sparta. Interstate disputes such as that between Athens and Aegina were resolved under the aegis of the League for the sake of the common interest. There is more that could be said, but the point I want to make is already clear. The mechanisms of this League of 481 BC provided an obvious toolbox for subsequent 5th century multilateral diplomacy. The success of the League. Greek victory over the Persians amounted to what we might call an existential experience for its members, especially Athens. The Athenians of the generation that followed had a sense of being part of a major positive transformation, expressed above all in their democratic form of government. The thinking of Pericles, as I have already said, is that the polis reflects a common or shared interest, the protection of which is essential if the private interests of the citizens are to flourish. Freedom and good order do not contradict one another. On the contrary, freedom and order, wise deliberation and creative action are correlatives. According to Thucydides, Pericles was able to hold the people in check eleutheros in a manner that respected their freedom. In the funeral oration, Pericles himself uses the word eleutheros. We deliberate eleutheros on matters of common interest. Pericles lists other characteristics of Athenian society that underpin free deliberation, including the willing acceptance of decisions by those who exercise arche or public office. The analogy between consensus in a Greek polis and stability in the international order is used by Hermocrates in proposing a common peace for Sicily at that conference in Gala that I mentioned, and is even more clear in another part of Thucydides, his narrative of the year 427, when a delegation from Mytilene, which is where the Pope was uh, the other day, uh, yesterday, delegation from Mytilene argues as follows. There can never be a firm friendship between man and man or a real community between different states unless there is a conviction of honesty on both sides and a certain like-mindedness in other respects, for if people think differently, they will act divergently. The terms used here, philia, friendship, and koinonia, community, and the idea that war among the Greeks is a kind of civil war go to the heart of subsequent Greek political thought. The word koinonia is, of course, cognate with koinon in the speeches of Pericles and Hermocrates and with koine in koine irene. It is because compulsion is so unreliable as an instrument of governance that Pericles, in the funeral oration, suggests that Athens confers benefits instead of calculating advantage and acquires friends by doing good. She is the Paideusis teis helidos, the education of Greece. As in Lorenzetti's allegory of good and bad government in the Palazzo Pubblico in Siena, the success or failure of the polis is linked to the exercise of virtue. Now, as it happens, Plutarch's life of Pericles contains the following intriguing passage. When the Lacedaemonians began to be annoyed by the increasing power of the Athenians. Pericles, by way of inciting the people to cherish yet loftier thoughts and to deem itself worthy of great achievements, introduced a bill to the effect that all Hellenes, whether resident in Europe or Asia, small and large cities alike, should be invited to send deputies to a conference, a sulagon, at Athens. The background to Pericles' initiative, according to Plutarch, was the mistrust between Athens and Sparta. Therefore, this Panhellenic conference proposed by Pericles can be understood as an attempt to avert the polarization of Greece. The initiative almost certainly belongs in the period between the truce with Sparta in 451 and the bilateral peace treaty with Sparta of 446. Did Pericles expect to be able to stabilize the political environment by means of an inclusive delegates' conference, a suligon of the Greeks, analogous to the suligon of Athenian citizens under the democracy? Plutarch is not cynical on this point, citing the whole episode as proof of Pericles' Megala his political imagination. Pericles, a full-time, long-term politician, will have planned to enter negotiations on a general peace with alternative scenarios in mind. One possible outcome was a failure that would expose the ulterior motives of the Spartans. Nevertheless, it is not hard to identify the positive agenda that Pericles would have put forward had Sparta permitted the general conference to take place. The concern in the decree with sanctuaries and sacrifices due to the gods is symbolically important, implying the existence of an underlying social reality that ought to have its counterpart in political arrangements. In his book World Order, Kissinger calls for order within regions as a first step to world order and emphasizes the importance of relating regional political dispensations to one another. A second element in Pericles' thinking was that the pacification of the Aegean and detente with Persia were interrelated projects. The peace of Callias between Athens and the king of Persia was concluded or renewed on roughly the same date as the invitation to the Greek states to a multilateral conference. Judging by other contemporary treaties, any new agreement would have attempted to manage political realities in a medium-term perspective of, say, 30 years. This would have meant juggling different principles of unification in the Greek world. Alliances, the Delian League, experiments in federalism, and the Amphictyony at Delphi, as well as any new zone of common peace. Sicily would have been left out of the equation for the time being. Ships were needed to deter Persia even after the peace of Callias. Freedom of the seas as the enabling condition of material progress was fundamental to Athenian thinking and is mentioned both in the Ode from the Antigone, from which I've quoted, and also in the Suppliant Women of Euripides, a play that advances the concept of Panhellenic law. Though Pericles would have insisted on the continuing existence of the Athenian navy and on contributions in cash and in kind by the allies, he would have left himself room for manoeuvre on the level at which contributions were assessed and the rules governing disbursements. Plutarch is clear that Pericles, in his invitation to a conference, was proposing pragia or common action. Here, once again, we have the key word koinos, as in koinonia and koine irene. An important piece of, ac- of evidence is the foundation of Thurii in South Italy in the 440s, which, according to our sources, depended on the personal vision of Pericles. This new city drew colonists from the Peloponnesus as well as Athens. A general conference in mid-5th century would have needed to deal with many well-established questions, such as voting rights in a renewed league, the autonomy of the participating states, and procedures for political arbitration, as well as emerging issues such as a common coinage and the role of the Athenian courts in interstate commercial disputes. That a broadly non-coercive common peace was in principle achievable appears to be The Verdict of Xenophon and Isocrates. I'll skip something here, but these authors from the 350s B.C., who grew up in the age of Socrates and Thucydides, looked back and argued that it was in principle possible for Athens to establish a broadly non-coercive peace. What I have called the democratic vision of a common peace can be regarded in sum, as an adaptation of the Panhellenic strategy against the Persians in a different arena and for longer-term purposes. I would submit that in mid-5th century, Pericles hoped to establish parameters of legitimacy such that the use of force in a particular instance would not entail a drastic loss of consent and goodwill in the wider Greek world or threaten overall stability. If this was to happen, if Charis, more than Phobos, or in Latin, Auctoritas, more than Imperium, was to become the measure of Athenian influence, the key was to gain acceptance of the need for common action in Greece, even in the absence of an imminent threat from Persia. Underlying the Megalophrosyne of Pericles was the reconciliation of order and freedom in the democratic polis and a growing understanding of the partial analogy between domestic and international order and therefore of the possibility of what St. Augustine calls a third level of human society. That's the reference which I gave you a moment ago in the thinking of St. Augustine. Now we know that as it happened, Sparta and her allies would not allow the general conference to happen. And even within the Athenian sphere, the three most important naval allies, Samos, Lesbos and Chios, were unpredictable partners. No doubt the position of local oligarchs was threatened by any deepening of relations with democratic Athens. Faced with opposition to his vision, Pericles recommended, as we know, the dangerous course Of no surrender to Sparta and the use of coercion to preserve Athenian control where it already existed. He expected Sparta to come to terms and he expected that hatred and jealousy of Athenian greatness would pass with time. I'm now going to turn to my third and last um, discussion. Concerns the common peace and the citizenship of the Church. Augustus economized on the use of force by rallying society around the vision of a lasting and fruitful Pax Romana. Pericles, I have argued, attempted to bring his concept of democratic leadership into play in interstate relations. I turn now to a strand in the classical tradition that runs from Aristotle through the Stoics to St. Augustine. The essence of this third conception is that laws and constitutions do not on their own guarantee peace. Peace depends ultimately on forms of friendship and community that are distinct from the polis, yet intersect with it. In The Republic, Plato points out that Homer never created for his followers a Homeric way of life, such as the way of life of the followers of Pythagoras. The way of life of philosophical communities is one of the sources of St. Augustine's thought, and another, of course, is his understanding of the people of God, rooted in his interpretation of the nature of Israel. But I intend to begin examining the citizenship of religious communities by taking a different starting point namely Aristotle's understanding of friendship. According to Pericles and other speakers in Thucydides, the pursuit of the common interest within the polis is part of a way of life. It comes with friendship and like-mindedness. Aristotle examines the role of friendship in greater depth and detail, especially in books 8 and 9 of the Nicomachean Ethics. They call that just, which is to the common advantage, he states. But he then offers an additional idea. Using the example of traveling companions, he argues that our pursuit of a common interest in any field tends as a matter of experience to turn into friendship. The shared journey of the traveling companions becomes a metaphor for community in all its forms, the family family. Soldiers on campaign together, men embarked on a business venture, religious festivals at local level, and finally the polis itself. All the communities, Aristotle concludes, appear to be part of the political community. And he then also suggests that what we might call the social contract tends to become redundant as friendship takes root. And this is another quotation. Friendship seems to hold states together and lawgivers to care for it more than justice. Like-mindedness, they aim at most of all and expel faction as their worst enemy. When men are friends, they have no need of justice, while when they are just, they need friendship as well. Understood as a koinonia, a commonwealth, the political community is based on justice and and enlightened self-interest. To protect our personal interests, we promote a shared public interest as well. However, relationships among the so-called traveling companions take on a life of their own. We become friends, and friendship is not about a lack of self-sufficiency, about utility or pleasure. It is pursued for its own sake. It can lead to self-sacrificing actions that contradict self-interest as ordinarily understood. Aristotle's belief in the overarching significance of friendship contains the seed of a revolutionary idea. One of the most important successors of Plato and Aristotle is the Stoic Zeno. Zeno's teaching is is hard to define in detail, largely because his successors found much of it too far-reaching and tried to conceal or to finesse what the master had said. Nevertheless, it is clear that a core idea of Zeno's is that friendship, though he preferred to speak of eros, love, between good or wise men, can be formed across the boundaries of city-states. That which draws good men together in love is not therefore contained or defined by any single political entity. And it follows that for the wise, there exists in principle an order, a cosmos, under which, as Plutarch puts it, all men could live like a single flock on a common pasture. The man who sees this possibility is a cosmopolites, a citizen of the potential world order, as well as a citizen of his own polis. Oswin Murray has pointed out that Philo of Alexandria draws on Zeno in portraying Moses as the archetypal Hebrew prophet. He is a cosmopolites, his Philo, for which reason he is not listed on the roll of any city. He has received no parcel of land, but the whole world as his portion. St. Augustine echoes Zeno and Philo in asking a fundamental question about what it is that we love in common. If one should say, Augustine writes in The City of God, a people is the association of a multitude of rational beings united by a common agreement on the objects of their love, then it follows that to observe the character of a particular people we must examine the objects of its love. St. Augustine's question has implications both for the formation of communities and for the individual. Communities of belief Communities for whom the object of love is God are valid in their own terms and act within society. For the individual, loyalty to the political community, which is appropriate, is inevitably in tension with loyalty to the city of God, to the history beyond history, in which justice will have the last word. A moment ago I argued in relation to Greece that concepts of international order that took particular forms in the 4th and 3rd centuries BC were present already in the political conversation of democratic Athens. And I would now like to argue, and thank you for your patience, I realise I'm going on for a long time, but I would like to argue that the main ideas of St. Augustine, which became so important in subsequent history, can actually be found uh, in the New Testament, directly in the New Testament. When Jesus says to Peter, "You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church," the word for church is the Greek. In the Greek version of the Gospels, is ecclesia, the Athenian term for an assembly of the citizens. Several other words describing the church have a prior political meaning. Words like brotherhood, community, and people. The ecclesia founded by Jesus differs in key respects from the ecclesia of the polis. It does not discriminate between persons, does not coincide with any political boundary, and exists for others rather than for the sake of self-sufficiency. So why did Jesus create a brotherhood not based on a blood relationship and an assembly that was not a political assembly? The Arapachus was dedicated in 9 BC, Herod the Great died in 4 BC. Between these two dates, Jesus of Nazareth was born, and St. Luke is careful to associate the birth of Jesus with Roman history, the census of Quirinius in the time of Caesar Augustus. St. Luke also describes how the shepherds guarding their flocks near Bethlehem heard a choir of angels peace on earth among men who are God's friends. There seem to be two implicit comparisons here between the Roman peace and the peace announced by the angels, and between two kinds of savior, Caesar Augustus, and the child in the manger. Apart from the shepherds, the other people who are given to understand the significance of the birth of Jesus are the magi. Shepherds, beneath the attention of Roman politics. The Magi represent a world beyond the borders of the Roman Empire. So the birth of Jesus is an event in Roman history, yet at the same time, according to St. Luke, it interrupts and challenges the idea that the Roman Empire of Caesar Augustus is the central reference point in human history. This implied challenge to Rome continues in the public life Jesus, who is described as the semayon anti-legomenon, the sign spoken against. The Essenes lived apart from society. The Gnostics of later centuries saw no goodness in human institutions. But Jesus is different. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often have I longed to gather your children as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you refused? That Jesus issues a summons to a special assembly called the Ecclesia seems to me a response to the social phenomenon of jealousy, also very prominent in Thucydides. In Thucydides, it's phthanos. And in the New Testament, we have words like anomia or iniquitas, a kind of not law that competes mysteriously with any effort at transformative goodness. The teaching of Jesus points, of course, towards the unseen, the heavenly Jerusalem of St. Augustine's vision. But presenting for a moment from this, I would argue that here and now, this ecclesia operates at two other levels. At a micro level, Jesus invites those who follow him to live everyday life in a spirit of sharing. And at a macro level, the ecclesia is available to constituted authority as a touchstone of truth. Now, I was going to argue here an interpretation of the denarius episode. Give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. But perhaps I'll advance more rapidly and just argue that Jesus was not in this whole episode intending to praise Roman authority or to propose a parallel political realm operating by its own laws. The the limits to what Jesus meant in saying to render to Caesar what is Caesar's are evident, I think, in the humorous nature of the reply. There is a similar element of playfulness in his earlier advice to St. Peter to pay the temple tax. And I quote here from St. Matthew, "...so as not to offend these people, go to the lake and cast a hook." Take the first fish that bites. Open its mouth and there you will find a shekel. Take it and give it to them for me and for you. Jesus often speaks of those who create anomia, meaning disorder and destruction, while presenting as just, dikaioi. In the book of Revelation, Rome is named as Babylon, the image of a cruel and alien society. More than three centuries later, St. Augustine paints an equally disturbing picture. The state religion of Rome, in preferring a workable ideology to the search for truth, creates a vacuum that is sometimes filled even by demonic forces. Individuals touched by this collective thinking are deprived of their right judgment. Socrates had based his whole teaching on the proposition that disagreements about justice are at the root of human conflict. The answer proposed by the New Testament is that truth is personal. Words like justice, truth, judgment, and good faith do have a fixed and stable orientation, such as Socrates struggled to discover. The fellowship of friends founded by Jesus, whatever else it may be, is a trustee of intellectual stability. I will conclude this third section of my talk by examining briefly St. Paul's letter to Philemon, the only part of the New Testament that deals directly with a hot-button issue of Roman law, namely the rights of slaves. The Romans knew that slavery was capable of being questioned. From the evidence of inscriptions it is argued that the majority of the inhabitants of the city of Rome may have been freed slaves or relatives of freed slaves. From other sources, we know that the right of slaves to seek asylum was a live issue. In the City of God, St. Augustine has a fairly detailed discussion of the master-slave relationship as an example of how the heavenly and earthly cities can intersect. In the New Testament, The key point is that the slave is included in the koinonia, in the commonwealth or community, and is a full member of the ecclesia. Koinonia, used in the New Testament, had been one of Aristotle's key terms, but in Aristotle the slave is excluded, and slavery can be understood as the archetype of a human relationship not mediated by communication and reciprocity. So this brings us now to the concrete case of Philemon and Onesimus. In this case, a legal dilemma is resolved through an act of charity or mercy on the master's part. St. Paul makes it clear that Onesimus will only be asked to return to Philemon on the basis of an assurance that he will no longer be treated as a slave. And the community of believers is witness to this agreement. (coughs) If we pause to reflect on the implications of this, we will see, I think, that, it, that this ruling by St. Paul has inevitable consequences at the macro level in the realm of law. The principle at stake in this case is impossible to reconcile with the slave trade, the denial of family rights to slaves, and many other contemporary practices. It is only a small step to understanding or rather internalizing that the institution itself is contra natura and is therefore at best a transient social reality the lesson to be learned here is a general lesson any structure of power can be called into question when brought into contact with the common life of a religious community to put this positively instead of negatively the christian conception of shared peace and of course I'm talking about Christianity here, but I think it could be said of other religious traditions. A conception of shared peace involving freedom of conscience, free response to authority, freely given friendship, all these things that define a kind of common peace can become the catalyst for breaking down institutionalized injustice, though the ways and means, the steps and intervals by which this can happen are open. To reasoned argument and perhaps open in particular to the serenity prayer. It's a question of judgment as to when and how to try to reduce the gap between uh, the vision of justice and the reality in front of us. I'm going to come now to some brief conclusions. So I'll just take a small glass of water. I promise, Anna, I'm coming to the end. My wife, Anna. <coughs> is my my great reader and advisor on these texts. I know it's quite long. Um, I will conclude with seven brief (coughs) observations or questions uh, about what we can learn from Pericles and Augustus and from St. Augustine and the New Testament. First, the Athenians, the Romans, and the fathers of the church shared the hope that suffering and division would not have the last word in human history. Peace is the norm. A state of general or common peace is a proper goal of politics. Second, all three traditions concentrate on the importance of freedom. Not freedom as consumer choice, as a means of maximizing satisfaction, but freedom as the condition of authentic human relationships based more on goodwill than coercion. The individual should be able to give his consent to the law. He must not be absorbed, submerged, or intimidated by the collective. Third, truth in all its forms is the concern of politics. You make a desert and you call it peace, states the leader of a conquered indigenous people in Tacitus. To avoid a false peace, the rationalization of unbalanced power structures, we need the core values espoused by Pericles, deliberation without duress, the possibility of criticizing and contributing to political debate without being accused of disloyalty. Fourth Our loyal opposition, our ability to stand back and criticise depends partly on the strength of what has been called our pre-political culture. Aeschylus and other figures of the Athenian Golden Age speak of the innate reverence on which the practice of politics depends. Augustus, Pericles and St. Augustine all take into their political thought some form of pre-political social reality in general. That could be Pan-Hellenism or the unity of mankind or the unwritten law. And perhaps we need to do more to nurture the beliefs, values, communities and traditions prior to the state on which persuasion and political leadership will depend, which means, among other things, to understand what is meant by the citizenship of the Church, and of other religious communities. My fifth conclusion is a question. Do we accept with Aristotle, Zeno, Philo, and St. Augustine that the polis is promoted not merely by the definition of rights and duties, by a well-judged koinonia, but also by what we choose to do for its own sake, by philia, our acts of gratuitousness, sharing, and self-restraint? Sixth, as we look to the international political order today, the ancient world can offer us different starting points for reflection. Is it possible, for example, to believe in the self-sufficiency of the individual polis or state? Or do we expect to bring about a comprehensive Pax Romana? Or do we follow Pericles and Woodrow Wilson in focusing on the medium term, on trying to harmonize the cultural, political, and economic factors in order to make an advance, to extend common rules and the scope for common action. And my seventh point is that to build a democratic common peace, we need to understand what Thucydides sets out to do, which is to bring intellectual coherence to a potentially chaotic political environment by defining the principal arguments in play and bringing these arguments into dialogue with one another, which means that an exercise in historical understanding enables democratic deliberation. Someone once said, it is not necessary to say everything in order to say something. So I hope that I've managed this afternoon to say something and that I've kept faith with Thucydides, who said all those years ago, and I'm quoting from book one of Thucydides, it will be enough for me if these words of mine are judged useful by those who want to understand clearly the events which happened in the past and which human nature, being what it is, will at some time or other and in much the same ways be repeated in the future.